0: Welcome to Vernacular Verbose. Today is a big episode for us. We're doing our critical analysis review of Thick as a Brick, released in 1972. One of the most, I think, important albums in the band's career, and one that a lot of people, I think, would probably point to as among their favorites, myself included. So my initial impression of this album is that this is one of Tull's masterpieces. Would you agree with that, Eugene? Oh, yes, absolutely. It is
1: one of my top Tull albums as well.
0: Yeah, I'll just I'll just kind of save the tension for the conclusion, and I'll just say now that uh, this is my favorite Toll album if I had to pick one. And you know, I mean, there's a couple that come close for me, but if there was such a thing as a Toll Desert Island Disc for me, it would definitely be this
1: one. I would be hard pressed to pick a single favorite album, but I w- would attempt to grab mu- grab multiple onto the Desert Island and Thick as a Brick would be among them.
0: Yeah. So the thing that, you know, most people write about when it comes to this album is... So, I mean, number one, I think this is sort of universally considered the first fully progressive rock album from Tull. And I would definitely agree with that.
1: Yeah,
0: sure. And I mentioned in the Aqualung episode that I, I don't really consider Aqualung a progressive album. So for me, this is, without a doubt, kind of the beginning of the progressive period of Tull. And I think it's also kind of, you know, we're getting into the, the golden age of Tull, right? And for, you know, from the early to late '70s, so we're going. We're about to go through several different albums, many of which are you know considered among the top ranks. So I think, with "Thick as a Brick," we're really like stepping into that sort of golden period of the discography.
1: Yeah, I when reading about about "Thick as a Brick" and how it was received at the time in comparison to the, to the other albums and about the other albums, I was actually kind of surprised that. A passion play wasn't considered mu- that much of a success that it, it was kind of the reception was kind of acerbic yeah critically to it well uh, yeah so we are talking about the golden age but and i do look look at it like that i, I love all the all of these albums but i know some people don't think that after thick as a brick it's masterpiece after masterpiece
0: yeah and i mean i don't i don't Think that either, by the way, as we'll see in the next couple episodes. But I think you know what I mean is we're we're getting into that period where there's a lot of really good albums packed together in a short period of time.
2: Yeah.
0: So we're we're kind of getting into like the the main heady part of the discography. Oh yeah. I think you know the main thing that people write about about this album a lot, aside from the progressive thing, is the whole parody idea, where you know this the band has been very clear that the point of Thick as a Brick was to be a parody of the progressive rock Mm -hmm. genre and of the concept period so the concept album period um i want to kind of know your opinion on that because for me personally growing up with this album and sort of the the meaning that it has to me even if it was created as a parody i've never really viewed it in that light in other words, this album still stands as a very serious piece of work in my mind, even if it's meant to be satirical or comedic or a parody or whatever. To me, it still it has it has a lot of important things to say still, even if it's trying to be a parody. What
1: do you think? I totally agree because we know for sure that what they it intended to do was a spoof of the concept album kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, that Anderson di- didn't consider aqualung a concept album and when it it has been called that he said no 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 just wait a bit i'll i'll show you what a concept album should be Mm -hmm. and with with all the with all the monty python-esque newspaper tidbits that that is got on the cover it's clear that the intention was to make a spoof but they were just too good yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think it's a good while, way of putting while, it. While making a spoof, they came up with one of the pro-rock ma- masterpieces.
0: I think the cover art is the, the element of the album where it's most clear and most apparent that it's a comedic, silly kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. I guess the point I'm making is the comedic spoof part does not come across in the music, in my opinion. And, I mean, it may very well be that, you know, I'm not... Uh, getting what the band meant because maybe the band meant for it to be a clear spoof from the beginning but I don't think it comes across that way it still comes across as a very serious work in my mind
1: yeah it kind of doesn't because it does have these sort of disjointed musical fragments which were kind of the hallmark of progressive rock music these days when the music goes from one section to another in very unexpected ways uh, combining the uncombinable and so on but i think this falls again into the too good kind of part they pulled it off so well yeah that it, it doesn't it doesn't sound funny it sounds right completely intentional and and beautiful
0: yeah and it's really interesting how that happened and i i kind of wonder what ian's opinion on that would be if he sort of agrees that that's what happened or if he just thinks it was something that was
1: misunderstood in kind of an odd way I also wonder we'll talk about it down the line but there are a few places where Ian played instruments that he didn't normally play yeah and I wonder whether sort of that approach that freedom that he felt that he could take a violin and 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 play a couple of fiddle parts whether that was made possible by the levity yeah that they were were experiencing while making this album.
0: I would probably say that it was. And there's a couple of specific instruments that we'll talk about later on, which I think are... Kind of an example of, you know, when you think of an, a grandos, you know, concept progressive rock album, that those are the kind of instruments you would think of. So I want to talk kind of about the whole Gerald Bostock frame, which is something oh, yeah. that I know a lot of Toll fans are familiar with with this album. The one thing I want to say on that is that it always felt to me, again, I feel like there's kind of a disconnect between the music and, say, the frame of the album. So the Gerald Bostock story is obviously explained on the front cover, where it's kind of this ridiculous absurd story about a 13-year-old boy who wrote a poem but then he got i guess in today's world we would say he was canceled because he uh he like impregnated a girl or something
1: like a 13-year-old if i remember right no that that was an allegation yeah 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 she she accused him of doing that
0: right so i i feel like if you look at the lyrics of the I mean, the lyrics are the poem, I get that. But Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say is, again, I feel like there's a disconnect between that grander story about Gerald Bostock and the actual music. To me, they don't feel, you know, like much related. Like, I mean, one example I would give, Thick as a Brick 2 is much clearer in this regard. Mm -hmm. You know, Gerald Bostock is brought up by name and it's very clear there's an attempt to make some kind of story surrounding characters and things in Thick as a Brick 2. Whereas on this one, I feel like there's more of a disconnect between the... Gerald Bostock frame and the actual lyrics to the point where I think the Gerald Bostock pro- part was probably thought of afterwards and kind of added on.
1: I'm not sure about that really because part of the story is that what is th- there is in, th- in the newspaper is that Jethro Tell decided to write an album based on, on that poem. There's an article in the newspaper about that, mm-hmm. like famous beat group to put out album, something like that. And to me, the lyrics do feel like they're written in character, mm. because they are kind of different from the normal Ian Anderson writing. In that, in these lyrics, he doesn't seem afraid of going completely over the top. Yeah, of of writing in a very sort of grandiose manner, like the dawn creation of the kings. It's not a typical Ian Anderson phrase. It's more like a g- yeah yeah sounds more like a John Anderson phrase of yes who is famous for kind of grandiose word salad, silly lyrics. Uh, yes, fans will forgive me. <laughs> and I feel like sort of Ian has pulled the stops where he wouldn't have written something like that in, his, in a usual song, but when writing from a persona of a precocious child poet, he sort of allowed himself these, I don't, I don't know how to put it here, allowed himself to be slightly less restrained allowed himself to be slightly maybe maybe more banal somewhere
0: yeah i see what you mean i think i would say two general things about the lyric which lyrics which is first that i agree with you that it's it's much more over the top and it's a lot of the lyrics are very like epic scale you know Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of that comes from the progressive rock spoof idea where you know Mm -hmm. he was trying to think you know what's the most crazy over the top sounding thing i can put here but i think again like we said it still works and i mean maybe today oh, you abs- know some people would look at, at, at the lyrics of thick as a brick and say oh that's lame or that's cringy or whatever but at least for me when i was a kid growing up i mean hey it worked for me <laughs> i mean i you know i there's still a lot of lyrics in here that when it gets epic it really feels epic to me
1: mm-hmm. yeah i do agree i do think that the, the, the lyrics work it's just that the frame kind of help helps explain how it is put how it fits together yeah how the 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 sentiment the critical sentiment about how the lyrical persona of of the author is not satisfied with how the world works how it fits together with the grandiose parts and and all the rest
0: yeah i think also this is kind of similar to the discussion that we had about the lyrics on benefit Mm -hmm. but i i feel like even though this is written supposed to be written from the point of view of some character, somebody else, I still think there's a lot of personal stuff in here or personally inspired stuff, because in general, you know, thick as a brick is supposed to be a coming of age story. And, you know, I know that that's a term which is thrown around a lot, probably too much in a lot of different media. But I think, you know, if there's a general theme about thick as a brick, it's coming of age, growing up, the transition from the juvenile to the adult world. And so Mm -hmm. I think in that sense, there's a lot of Uh, you know maybe not direct personal anecdotes, but personal influence from maybe anderson's own life
1: or his view on society or whatever yeah maybe his doubts about society i don't think it is his views Hmm. expressed directly but it's the exploration of the more extreme points of view that of course he thought about Mm -hmm. as an intelligent person yeah some of the lyrics must be based on autobiographical experiences because you can't write what you don't know. Sure. And I'm sure that uh, Ian didn't just read about all of this in books. He felt things like that. He felt similar things. But uh, the way they are put together create a completely new character, a one that's more extreme, a one that's more uh, maximalist in a sort of juvenile kind of way. Yeah. And again, this, this maximalism, this being over the top, is excused by the character Ian is writing this through.
0: Right, so then comes Gerald Bostock. Mm -hmm. So the last thing I wanna mention is the member lineup So we have Ian Anderson on vocal flute, acoustic guitar, Martin Barr on electric guitar, Jeffrey Hammond on bass, John Evans on keyboards, and then for the first time, Barry Barlow on drums. So I think there's a lot that we can say about Barry Barlow. I think a lot of TOL fans would probably agree with this, but I I can certainly say as a drummer that he is one of the most criminally underrated drummers, I think, of his generation. And uh, whenever people have asked me who my favorite drummer is, Uh, I always say Barry Barlow, because the the degree to which he was able to come up with unbelievably creative and technical drum parts while still fitting the song. And certainly, you know, the the progressive material of Tull at this period gave him a good opportunity to do that. But still, it takes an incredibly skilled musician to come up with and play in a way that fits a lot of the parts that he came up with. And I think Thick as a Brick is a fantastic example of some of his best playing. And it's unbelievable to me to think that, I mean, you know, imagine you join a huge touring, successful band and the first album that you have to record is thick as a brick. Like, I mean, that must be insane. But uh, he pulled it off fantastically, I think, on this
1: album. And there's some amazing drum work. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think it must have, it must have kind, in a way, kind of have been liberating for him. Like, the first thing they record is not a number of songs that he had to learn and with a kind of a rigid framework but this huge blank canvas of a of an album long song where where you could put anything you like in there and i think there are a couple of places on the album where i sort of imagine barry having kind of being goofy about about his drumming
0: yeah i always wondered how they recorded this you know like where i mean where were the where were the gaps between the, the recording and things? I always wonder oh, about I, that.
1: I did actually read some uh, some notes about the recording process and a lot of that was actually recorded live. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. And some, sometimes uh, they uh, had, had tape running at, at the wrong speed and had to redo a section because it didn't match. Huh. And some of the reverb, the differences in the reverb are because they would have sort of different reverb settings between between sessions. And these didn't exactly match, but it kind of all worked together. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I imagine it would be almost impossible to record an album like this unless you you did it live, you know, all in the same room.
1: Mm -hmm. Without without a digital workstation, of course. Yeah, of course. It's a different thing today, but it wouldn't have felt the way it feels. It feels so together. Yeah. It feels how it flows so well from from part to part. That yeah
0: so of course there's no easy way for us to sort of separate this track by track or anything the steve wilson remix has the album separated into tracks into i think eight different tracks now i just want to say on this real quick that in general i'm a very big fan of the steve wilson remixes and i think that the band and the people associated with putting those together have done a great job in creating uh, a package for the fans that has very clearly had a lot of time and effort put into it and i think they're very good but I have to say on this one, I hate how they separated this into tracks on the remix. Like, the first time I saw that, it almost felt, like, sacrilegious to me to, to split up thick as a brick and put it into tracks
1: beyond just the two vinyl sides. What do you think? I know I know what you mean, and um, I, too, don't like thinking about this album as eight tracks instead yeah. of two, instead of one, because, basically, it's only separated into two tracks, by virtue of it being on a vinyl record had they have had they had uh, CDs at the time, I'm sure it would have been just one song. Yeah, without the fade fade out and fade in on the wind part. Maybe we wouldn't even have that wind kind of uh, fade out and fade in. But I just I just ignore this. Yeah, I just I just close my eyes. I, I put put the track list aside. I've, I've, and, been, uh, I've been I've been meaning and, to and,
0: go into my dawn, edit them all together pretty <laughs> soon, just to have two tracks again.
1: I'm just viewing them as sort of markings in a score, as if I've been reading a score that had these sections marked just for the convenience of the musician. yeah, you know not, not just numbers of bars, but this is the section called "From the Upper Class."
0: And I think to give them credit, they actually they did a good job with where the track markings are in the actual music. I think they, they fade mm-hmm. together fairly well and you can you can actually listen to it, you know, track by track and or even if you listen to them out of order, they still sound somewhat coherent. Um, there's later Tull albums where I think they didn't do a good job doing that. Uh, passion play being one of them mm-hmm. but i think uh-huh. it, it works you know it, it works well within the context of the music on this album
1: listening to thick as a brick out of
0: order that's yeah one i would of never I would, ne- I would never do that <laughs> <I could but laughs> just saying <laughs> So um, we're just going to kind of go and move through this sort of section by section. And I know this is mm-hmm. a bit of an abstract, vague way to do this, but there's not really a better way that we have. Um, but I think that's the way that sure. makes the most sense. So we're going to start with you know, what we're calling, or what they call on the track list, the Really Don't Mind section at the beginning of the album. Mm-hmm. Really don't mind if you sit this one out so right off the bat there's this motif of this acoustic guitar part which comes back several times throughout the album and every time I listen to this album I appreciate that more and more cuz it's almost in a way it's like you know today we have music and art centered around glitch aesthetic or that kind of thing where you know you're mm-hmm. you're you're somewhere and then you're suddenly there's a sudden jarring transition and then you're somewhere else or you're somewhere back where you've been before and I mean, it's not like they were thinking of that specifically in this context, but this guitar motif is almost like that where there's several moments on the album where you're somewhere totally far away from this beginning acoustic guitar riff, and, but then suddenly you're, you, you're cut right back to the beginning
1: again. And I really think that's cool. Yeah, that, that's very nice. And it's almost symphonic, but it's also completely not symphonic in the way that, it, that it's used. The leitmotif that we encounter multiple times throughout a symphony in quotes, but the way that we cut to it, instead of it being woven in somewhere in the background is a very different approach.
0: Yeah, and it's in some kind of crazy time signature. I mean, 90% of this album is in a crazy time signature, but I think it's in
1: 12-something. It is, yeah, I wanted to talk about that. It is isn't 12, but it alternates between, within 12-8, it alternates between the feeling of 3-4 and triplet 4-4. Four, four. Mm. So it goes 1-2-3, 2 to 3, two, three. Three to three, four to three, in the triplet four-four, and then switches to one two three, one two three, one two three, one mm-hmm. two three. The kind of straight three-four, but the all of both of these fit into the twelve bar.
0: And he varies how he's playing it, but I mean it's still the same central idea. But he he just varies it ever so slightly as it goes on, which I've always I've always kind mm-hmm. of noticed that more and more every time I listen to it.
1: Yeah, one of the one of the places I like in this section very much, the little bridge. Before they go into and the love that I feel, and then again the same little bridge before spin me back down the years. It's kind of cinematic. It got got that sort of feel when the going into the past trope yeah. in cinema feels really cool.
0: And I think it took me a couple of listens before I kind of realized that this. You know, one disclaimer I want to give here is I don't want to feel like we're over analyzing the lyrics because there's a lot that you can read out of the lyrics of a of an album like this. But to be honest. I think these lyrics are very much intended to be very abstract. I don't think there's, you know, very specific deep meanings that are trying that are waiting to be mined out of this album. I think mm-hmm. in in Passion Play there is. I think that's more of that kind of album. But for Thick as a Brick, you know, I think it's very wide open and abstract and I think it was kind of made to be that way. But that being said, I think this opening section the lyrics in this section, it's sort of introducing a tale of the past that a storyteller is about to tell, which is what the rest of the album is about the childhood, supposedly. So, you know, spin me back down the years, let them sing the song, mm-hmm. and then we go into the loud part
1: of See There a sun Is Born. Mm-hmm. And that's the song. Right, yeah. Right? Uh, let them th- sing the song, and th- and, th- and then we go See There a Is Born. Th- that is the actual beginning of the story right mm-hmm. yeah that, that that's that's an interpretation i could i could get behind there's a funny article on the web about social criticism in thick as a brick and one of the things i took out of it that one can notice if if you start pulling apart the lyrics of the album is how i and you and we are used very interchangeably there's no clear there's no clear you yeah in the album the, of the person the the author's talking to just as well as that there's no clear eye both of these personas are sort of vague and interchangeable Mm -hmm. so the criticism is omnidirectional so to speak
0: yeah i think there there is no you know central narrator or protagonist Mm -hmm. in the album even though you know as i said he's setting it up to be a storyteller telling a story presumably about himself. but i think it doesn't continue that way through the album i think I mean, when I view the lyrics of this album, I view it as jumping around to different abstract vignettes that are not necessarily mm-hmm. connected to each other.
1: Yeah, that's one of the criticisms in the article about Gerald Bostock's poem. <laughs> mm,
0: yeah, that's funny. I haven't looked at the full newspaper in a long time. I only remember a couple parts of it.
1: I, I skimmed through it. I didn't reread it completely, but I read several parts there's
0: a lot of stuff in there there's a lot of text and and stuff written in there
1: yeah and I I love how it sort of references the lyrics in different parts of it in different places among the Mm. stuffed penguins and rabbit and non-rabbit jokes what do you think uh, what is an animal
0: deal to you? What, what what is the meaning of an animal deal?
1: same thing as rat race I always thought
0: I could never tell if it's like, you know, a deal for an animal, like selling animals, or if it's saying like using animals like a, a bad adjective, like you're making a bad deal and it's like you're an animal. I never could really tell
1: what that's supposed to mean. I I always I always heard it as um, just derogatory, a derogatory adjective, right. meaning uh, like we say in, in the phrase rat race, meaningless, not very intellectual. Mm-hmm. Only directed to basic needs. Yeah. Or or desires, things like that.
0: And I think of the themes that you can mine out of this album, one of them that's very apparent is, you know, something about being wise versus being stupid. Where, mm-hmm. you know, thick as a brick I think is, you know, referring to being stupid. And there's a lot of talk about making sure that the son is a wise
1: man, is, you know, not like mm-hmm. the rest. And I, I think that's kind of interesting. And the, again, the, the narrator is alternately wise and stupid. Yeah, yeah, I've never thought of it that within, way, actually. Within the course of of the lyrics, but but they they say that they are thick as a brick, and then the, then there's a persona who's also referring to themselves as I, uh, who's saying to mend your rotten ways, you know. Yeah. Who, who wants to? Who feels themselves as as wise, wiser than the rest? Mm-hmm.
0: One last word that I'll give on this opening part is to me it, you know a lot of thick as a brick sounds very grand and epic and adventurous. Like it's almost I don't want to you know stick this kind of label on it, but to me, it's almost been like a Lord of the Rings like you know medieval adventure type feel to it in the sense that like in this album, you go a lot of places and you you traverse a long distance as you go throughout the course of the album. And so mm-hmm. this beginning acoustic part, to me, it, it's sort of like the the hearth fire in the home at the very beginning mm-hmm. of the adventure. You know, it starts in this little home, and then it goes way out into the into the countryside in the adventure, and then, of course, in the end, it comes back to the home, and that that's kind of how it's always been imagined in my mind.
1: Yeah, I can see what you mean. I love the sort of sound design parts in in this section, uh, on, and the love that I feel there's an organ playing and a glockenspiel yeah yeah and the glockenspiel is utilized basically it feels like the glockenspiel is the attack of the organ it combines with it so well Mm -hmm. that they are not they feel like they are not separate instruments but one instrument and that's a kind of a sound design thing that i enjoy very much
0: and for years the various drummers of jethro tull have brought a glockenspiel out on tour just so they can play the opening
1: part of thick as a brick which is pretty funny (laughs) Well, yeah i think Part of the f- fun of being, it's all drama.
0: Yeah. So we kind of move on then into this next section, which we're sort of calling See There A Son Is Born, where the mm-hmm. loud, sort of the loud part, I guess you'd call it, kind of comes in.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think it's very clearly. It's intended to be surprising. You know, it, it's sort of supposed to be uh, sure. shocking where you suddenly have the full band come in and that very, you know, sort of addictive like repeating uh, guitar
1: part. Mm-hmm. And the 10/8 or 5/4 depending on how you look at it time signature. I I think it's 10/8 because you can't really you can't really can count from 1 to 5 during it. It's more like a takita takita takaka takita takita goes in a 10 count of 10, but there are also, sections of four-four, and sections where I think something like I counted three plus five and three plus five, and then it goes back to, to ten. It's pretty nuts.
0: You should be a drummer or something, because I I never think about time <laughs> signatures when I'm listening
1: to stuff like this. Uh, I I specifically sat down and, and counted. <laughs> oh, that sounds like hell to me. Because I I wanted to I wanted to figure out what what's going on mm-hmm. there.
0: One thing I love during this section is. So when the the acoustic guitar kind of comes back, you know, during some little sections, and it sounds so far away, and I love the way that sounds, you know, kind of getting mm-hmm. back to the sound design of some of this album, because there's a lot of attention that was paid to the sound design. Um, you know, there's a lot of panning on the album, which is quite interesting, and uh, but I love when those little, you know, quiet measures come and you can hear the, the guitar just kind of far off in the distance. I love mm-hmm. how that sounds.
1: Yeah. Uh, I also love the saxophones here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, w- the way they're utilized, I think, maybe it's the close harmony type of thing that they play. They have a kind of, they are used, like they're often used in the music of uh, Van de Graaf Generator, the band, mm-hmm. who are pretty famous for using saxophones in the prog rock context. But the player there played the saxophones like, again, influenced by Roland Kirk, by which I mean he played several saxophones at once. And when you play several saxophones at once, that you can't but play in close harmony. Yeah. Uh, And these sort of saxophone parts, which are quite forceful, they feel sort of, to me, Van generatory, and I'm saying that in a very positive kind of way.
0: Mm. You know, when it gets to that staccato part, the Mm da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, it sounds almost kind of like surf-rocky, and I mean, i don't know if that was the intention but it kind of reminds me of like wipeout or some of the more you know surf rock uh classic songs it's
1: so much based on the snare drum yeah uh uh, all of these rhythms that i'm i'm hearing them as very scottish as a very kind of scottish march
0: yeah that's interesting sort of
1: thing And, and there are several places on the album that i hear as marches and there are various marching rhythms utilized throughout the album and yeah to me it it all feels like sort of Scottish music
0: yeah I never thought of it that way but I think you're right I guess specifically I'm talking about kind of as the guitar goes up and down with the uh like it's Mm -hmm. it's very like yeah uh, yeah, surfing to me
1: I think yeah it's both sort of both things together and when you got that these sort of fast repetitive parts on, on the guitar they will feel sort of like surf rock Mm-hmm. But it's also amazingly cool how in the first five minutes of the album, after a very quiet intro, we are getting an absolutely insane organ solo. yeah, And a guitar intermission, I wouldn't call it a solo, but very powerful guitar intermission that follows it. And it adds to the surprise of what we are getting, w- where we ended up so quick yeah
0: i love this section because as you said i mean it's the first five minutes of the album and i think you've already experienced so much in that five minute mark Mm -hmm. that for anyone listening to it for the first time it's kind of like oh okay so it's gonna be like this (laughs) Mm mm-hmm So then we come to kind of there's this very sudden like crash and there's kind of a, a linger after the crash where you come to that quiet part with uh the, just the bass and drums which kind of leads into the poet and the painter section.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One thing that's always interested me about the sound here when you come to that kind of quiet part where there's that little like you said kind of a march snare part the dot 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 Uh-huh uh the drums sound like they have something on them like it almost sounds like it could be some kind of phaser or something it it could just be the way the mics were placed it whatever the effect is it i feel like it was kind of dialed back in the steve wilson mix it doesn't sound as prominent as it was but something about the drum mic sounds different and i've never been able to place exactly what it is
1: yeah i will need to listen back to that too to think about the drum mics but i do know that they didn't have a phaser unit mm. all the phasing was done by by matching microphones yeah oh, that's interesting in the beginning of this section where, where is just the bass i kind of feel like the bass tone is very odd yeah yeah i agree it, it's got a very sort of hollow sound and I'm, I'm not sure what what happened there but it's it's very odd and it's different from from the rest of the track and the rest of the album
0: yeah, I know exactly what we are talking about. And I have in my notes here, I have written, it sounds almost army march-like. So, yeah, I see what yeah, you mean.
1: Yeah, it, it is a Scottish march. It's a tum, takatum, takatum, takatum. Yeah. it's the March number one, I'm calling this. We'll hear it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this is where the and, uh,
0: lyrics, for me, they start to get kind of really epic for the first time in kind of like mm-hmm. that kind of highbrow manner. So, I mean, I guess the question, you know, who is the poet and the painter? Do you think there's any, any meaning behind that?
1: I think they're just painting a kind of a stereotype mm-hmm. of uh, a creative person versus a military person right. because there's a lot of that in this in this section and I'm not even sure that um, the poet and the painter are different people mm-hmm. in here or is it the same person or does it does it really matter mm-hmm. of course the, there is the, the, the duality where there's the, the parallel sort of syn- uh, parallel syntax in in the lyrics say the poet and the painter and in the next phrase, the doer and the thinker. Yeah. And the doer and the thinker are definitely different people, so we should probably assume that the poet and the painter are different, but the difference between the poet and the painter in this section is not really explored.
0: That's interesting because I... So not so much the poet and the painter, but for me, the, the doer and the thinker, that, mm-hmm. that to me has always represented kind of two sides of the same person, and mm-hmm. maybe sort of different sides of growing up. And specifically, you know, later on it gets to this whole, you know, lyrical thing about the milking girl and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, call this overanalyzing if you want. But being that this is a coming of age story, I've sort of always seen this as kind of uh, like a sexual moment in a way where you have there's a specific line about the poet sheets his pen and the soldier raises his sword. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to me, that's that's always had kind of a sexual undertone to it, and maybe I'm totally wrong, but that's kind of how I've always viewed this section.
1: Well, Ian, Ian Anderson is very famous for his innuendos, so we mustn't discount that. But of course, this uh, the, the line about um, contemplates the milking girl whose offer is his need is is a sexual reference and yeah. sort of a class reference mm-hmm. in the in this story because th- this is clearly a story from the olden times, the cattle quietly grazing. Yeah it is not a modern part we are not in a modern city like we we would will be later in the album
0: yeah and again like we are like
1: in a so, sort of a countryside um residence with a family with generations and generations of people going to war and yeah. returning and have, having servants and exploiting them and so on
0: and like i mentioned this is kind of where you get you know you're you're out over the hills into the countryside now on this sort of mm-hmm. you know whatever adventure that this album is taking you on there, there's a lot more kind of you know family themes that get introduced here which i think are sort of carried forth into other parts of the album where you have the whole thing about you know the father being introduced and the the family and the servants and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. musically i love how abstract and jammy it gets here you know, I think there's oh, yeah. in, there, in, the, in
1: the midsection, yeah, meandering, yeah,
0: and there's there's even more abstract stuff on side too. I think, but I, you know, I I, I kind of feel like it's a style that the band hadn't partaken on yet at this point, and so to mm-hmm. see them just kind of get totally freeform is really cool, and I think they they do it really
1: well. And I think this part is in this section. It's really necessary to sort of offset the grandeur of the epic theme and the the marching feel and that sort of thing yeah i like how the guitar is playing against itself in the in this gem
0: yeah i was about to mention that there's a this this solo is great i think right here and i remember if if anybody who had listened to our intro episode they may remember i told a story about how i kind of grew up with this album laying in my bed night after night Mm -hmm. you know when i was supposed to be asleep and i distinctly remember listening to moments like this guitar solo and because i was so inexperienced with music i was sort of discovering recording techniques for the first time just by listening to this album and this is kind of where i discovered what overdubs were for the first Uh time or you know there was kind of a realization in my little brain where i thought like oh he's he recorded that, and then he went back and played over it. That's cool, and that was oh, kind yeah. of the first <laughs> time I realized what an overdub was.
1: That's great. Before that section, I also have in my notes that I really love how the overdriven Hammond and guitar contribute to the rhythm, rhythmic part. Mm-hmm. And in the end of the jam, the, there's a place when the drums kind of pick up, and the Hammond and the guitar start kind of going into wailing so, sort of parts. Yeah and the bass is the only sort of discernible me- melody yeah it feels like a bass solo which it isn't because it's just the bass part that's been there but we're hearing it because the hammond and the guitar are going totally nuts in the in the upper register and all of a sudden we're, we are focusing on the bass that's very, very cool.
0: Yeah, I know what you're talking about, and it's not just those instruments but the drums as well. That the, the drums mm-hmm. are going insane at the end of this part where the fills are just like, they're not even marked by measures, they're just carrying into everything. And one kind of secret I'll let you in on is that for my drum channel, one of the long-term projects I'm planning on doing is within the next year I want to do a full cover drum cover of Thick as a Brick, which, to my knowledge, would be sort of the first, like, filmed, you know, full drum cover of the album. And, you know, a moment like this, where the fills are just so unintelligible, is a
1: moment that I'm very afraid <laughs> of trying to replicate. <laughs> I'm sure you will you will do a wonderful job with that. I'm very much looking forward to that. With the bass in this section, there's another note that I really like. Before the line, the cattle quietly grazing, when we go back to the, to the verse, the bass sort of plays a it sounds like a flat second. It doesn't sound like the root note, but it's sort of in in between. So maybe it was unintentionally bent carelessly or sort of over picking if he hit the, the, the string too hard and it came, came out slightly higher than necessary, but it creates such a wonderful tension. I don't yeah. know wh- whether they meant to do that or it was an accident, but it's so great. Mm. I very much recommend to listen specifically to what the bass is doing before the line the cattle quietly the grazing
0: so the next section what do you do when the old man's gone mm-hmm. so this is kind of like just a prelude to the next section, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite short.
0: There's kind of a hi-hat pan, if you know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. where he, you know, he's he's splashing on the hi-hat and it pans across from I think left to right. And mm-hmm. like I mentioned, that that's kind of another moment as a kid where I sort of discovered the recording technique of panning. Where I was like, uh-huh. oh, wow, this is moving across my head. That's cool. <laughs> so And that's done a lot on this album in really effective ways, I think.
1: Yeah, the time signature in this one is also a little bit crazy because it goes into a similar 12-8, but there's stuff thrown in. There's like a bar of 9 and a bar of 4-4 and a bar of 3-4 and a bar of 4-4 again. And if you don't count it, it's really not something you notice. It's just part of... Like, like part of... Of a general phrase,
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. There's more really crazy drum fills, kind of in the breaks in between, mm-hmm. and then we kind of go into the this sort of organ solo, sort of where there's a bunch of different sections mm-hmm. of organ playing, and I especially like there's that one particular part where it's, it's very lonely and like very reverb the uh, where mm-hmm. it sounds kind of far off, like da 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 da. I think that yeah. part's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I don't think it's a section that repeats a lot in the in the album because within the course of the album we return to different themes Mm -hmm. that we've we've explored but this is kind of a unique moment it feels like
0: and then we go into i guess what we'd call kind of the famous organ riff Mm -hmm. on this part of the album which is what we would call sort of the from the upper class section Mm -hmm. where we go into this kind of extended part that lasts for quite a while
1: This is Scottish to me. Scottish march number two. Mm, yeah. D- different rhythm. It goes like ta dum ta dum ta dum ta dum. Yeah. It feels like a march, but it's also a jig. Yeah, yeah. I think a jig. Yeah, jig is a better term. It, it, it's just when it gets slower and more sort of pron- pronounced with, without moving forward quite a bit. Mm. Then it feels more like a march.
0: I love the violin in the back. It sounds
1: so good. Oh yeah. Actually, the, the the funny thing is i i think i discovered that there's a violin very recently
0: yeah it's it's not easy i mean i think it's you can kind of yeah. your ear can tell there's something going on but it, you can't really tell it's a violin it's kind of hard to catch on to
1: yeah and when i figure out it was a violin my first thought was oh dear did did deep armor call a <laughs> classically trained violinist and hand them a score Uh, where it said, play slightly out of tune like a drunken fiddler. (laughs) Uh, But then, no, it's Ian Anderson actually playing the violin and I was very surprised to learn that because I know in multiple interviews Ian stated that he would play any string instrument as long as it had frets. A violin famously doesn't have frets, so I'm, I'm not sure what what compelled him to play the violin and play it fairly well i must say it does sound slightly out of tune but it works it's a it's a a very folk kind of fiddler sound yeah i think it's great and again i think it, it it's the it's the fun they were having during the recording of this album that let him just pick up the violin and say yeah sure why not let me go and play a jig yeah and it's double panned he actually plays two parts That that uh that we can hear in in opposite ears. Mm -hmm.
0: There's a great flute solo here. I think one of the best Mm Ian
1: flute solos. Yeah, interesting that uh, on this album there's not much trademark sort of Ian scat flute playing grunts and 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 all of that, and Mm -hmm. even a very uncharacteristic flute sound later down the album this is the place where the flute sounds fairly clean and again fairly folky mm. like in the in the same Scottish kind of vein and well maybe maybe Ian felt already felt that his flute playing was becoming slightly better that he didn't need as much uh, singing while playing to use it as a crutch to make it more expressive because he felt that it was already expressive enough
0: yeah I think this yeah. section, just as an aside, you know, there's a lot of different live versions of "Thick of a Brick that you can listen to from different live albums and things. But this section, I think, has always been so amazing. When, you, If you listen to it live, just this kind of from the upper class part, just something about it just, like, bangs so hard when they, they played this one live.
1: Yeah, I think it translates fairly well to a live performance.
0: And I love when the flute joins that organ riff and you know plays it slightly mm-hmm. differently but i think it sounds so great
1: that, that that's when it kind of s- s- begins to sound like a march yeah because it, it you know feels like a, people marching to the beat of a drum a flute is le- leading the procession that kind of thing
0: so then we move on to you curl your toes in fun which is a pretty mm-hmm. sudden sh- a tonal shift i think And it's the second instance of where we have the guitar motif coming back so Mm -hmm. it's almost kind of like uh you know being tethered back to more humble
1: beginnings or something is kind of the way that i see it yeah and the time signature is very interesting again because in in this one we don't really have these places where we can hear a clear three four clear waltz sort of feel which we did in the chorus of the intro but your new shoes are worn at the heels that's that's what i'm talking about when when, when saying it's a waltz but here we only have the sort of very clearly 12 eight playing guitars So attack it attack it attack it attack it, it, it but the hi-hat says it's a three because the hi-hat accentuates two three up two three up two three that's what the hi-hat is doing mm-hmm. and we are not sure where exactly it's basically a polyrhythmic situation
0: yeah i love how they handled the transition between this part where you have you know the organ the guitar kind of carries the organ out mm-hmm. whereas the da, 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 it, it's so genius mm-hmm. i think the way that they handled that
1: yeah again there's an insertion of 4 4 before it goes into 12 mm-hmm. and that that's that's how they they make the transition it's a lovely theme. It's a new te- new melodic theme on the album. The you ukule- curl you curl your toes in fun. Yeah, it's and a- we will it will reappear later again.
0: It's very sweet. You know, it sounds mm-hmm. very sweet and innocent. I think it's supposed to be kind of funny because you know the lyrics are not sweet and innocent. You know, they're a little uh, biting.
1: Yeah, sort of. But again, sounds sounds a little bit like an innuendo. The first line, you curl your toes in fun. Could be. And. It does, lyrically, it does continue, it offsets the persona of the previous verse, of the previous part, who's come down from the upper class to mend our rotten ways, and then this one is directed critically at that person, that person feels like.
0: yeah. You know, the subject of the curl your toes in fun, I always thought it was kind of a, it's like a schoolboy, ranting against their teacher that's mm-hmm. kind of the way that i've always saw it and i i'm not saying that any of my interpretations are correct i'm just saying like this is personally how i always saw them but you know you curl your toes in fun as you smile at everyone you you tell us what not to be when your doings are you done mm-hmm. and you laugh most ruthlessly and you tell us what not to be i've always kind of viewed that as you know kind of a a student's complaint against sort of like a more authoritative teacher figure
1: mm-hmm I'm not sure what the teacher is doing in the courtroom, but, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a separate thing. I think that's, Uh in my mind, it's kind Uh of a different vignette. But I love the courtroom part. The courtroom part is... uh, I mean, this is childhood heroes, I guess, we're sort of getting Mm -hmm. into.
1: (music) This is one of my most favorite parts of the album. Oh, yes. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And it's got brass, it's got trumpets.
0: Yeah, and it, I remember as a kid, it took me a long time to hear that because I, I think it's kind of
1: purposely buried in the back Bur- with the j- jangly guitar that yeah. sort of masks the, the harmonics of the trumpets. But yeah, and again, Ian Anderson playing the trumpet. Yeah. Very surprising.
0: You can most easily hear it when, you know, it's ba bap, 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 That's kind of the part you can hear most easily. Mm hmm. One, so one thing on the Steve Wilson mix, the acoustic guitar sounds like it was buried a bit in, in during this courtroom part. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you feel that way, but I, I, I seem to remember on like the 97 remaster, it was much more audible during this part and I was kind of sad that it, uh-huh. it sounds like they
1: turned it down a bit here. I'm not sure I noticed that need to make a com- direct comparison. In here, childhood heroes part, I think we have my most goosebumps moment on the entire album. Is when the song goes into "You put your bet on number one" yes. and it comes up every yes, time. Yes, 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 yes. It is so wonderful, and I think it works. One of the one of the ways I could explain that is that harmonically, in the "So come on, your childhood heroes" section, we are firstly in a very sort of major kind of section. And secondly, harmonically, it's very meandering. We are not sure where the tonal center is. The chords follow one another, but they don't define the home quite clearly. Yeah. But then when it slams down onto that G minor chord and you put your bet on number one, we suddenly discover, oh, that's where we are, it's not even a resolution. I'm not talking about the same thing as I did with Locomotive Breath, it's just we, we finally know where we are and it feels so great. Yeah. With the arrangement and the rhythm combined.
0: I'm so glad you, you brought that up, because I was going to mention the exact same thing, <laughs> where uh, that lyric, the lyrics in this part of the album are so good, I feel like they're worth like reading out in full, but you know, that little couplet with, you put your bed on number one and it comes up every time, the other kids all fall back down and they put you first in line, and so you finally ask yourself just how big you are, and you take your place in a wider world of bigger motor cars mm-hmm. I remember when I was a kid listening to that, you know, I mean, I was kind of at the age that this album is supposed to be about, I guess, you know, at that phase in life. Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically that line, you know, those lyrics would give me goosebumps, because I, I would feel how, like, that was what I was going through. As a kid. Yeah. It was that exact thing where, you know, you get to that point where you're 12, 13 going into your teenage years and you start to realize how, just, I mean, to put it simply, the world doesn't revolve around you. hmm And you start to see other kids, you know, you start to notice your pecking order in the hierarchy or the, you know, whatever you want to call it of, of your social group. And, uh that line those lyrics to me are sort of if there was a thesis statement of the album i think it's that like that's kind of what the whole album
1: revolves around yeah it's it's one way of looking at it i I do agree and i wonder when you were listening to this at that age do you know who the hell was Biggles?
0: Oh no! I mean, no American would ever know who Biggles was. I mean, it, it probably wasn't till I saw the Thick as a Brick 2 tour, where they did you know both albums in full. Mm-hmm. And I remember they had a really kind of janky-looking projector set up behind the band, and during this uh-huh. part, they were like showing like Google images of the stuff that you know Ian was talking about. I remember there was a thing about Biggles, and so that was maybe one of the first times where i realized that biggles was like a like you know a childhood hero for british children
1: yeah that's what he was but w- what did you think he was when you listened to this
0: i just assumed he was just a like a, a school friend uh-huh you know like you know a friend of yours and you don't know where the hell he is or what he's doing when you need uh-huh. him which i think is an experience most school kids can probably relate to
1: yeah and well it, it does feel when when you give kids Sort of a childhood hero that it's not their own hero, right? Like Superman and, and Batman and Robin uh, referenced in the previous couplet, but Biggles, who is sort of a kind of a propaganda figure, right? Mm. A, a soldier yeah. telling kids about war. But still, all of these heroes t- to a kid feel like friends. Yeah. And someone who sort of wasn't there when they need- needed them, like the friend they would, they, they don't necessarily maybe hold in awe as much as they as they do Superman. Yeah, that's the maybe the feeling that they would have about about heroes like that. Like this hero is not up to snuff. He wasn't there.
0: But I really appreciate the way that he brought in figures like Superman and Robin. I mean, maybe that mm-hmm. sounds weird for me to say that, but I mean, for me as a kid, like I could still relate to what that meant. You know, even. Uh-huh. You know 30 35 years later you know i still kind of related to that and I, I just love the absurdity of some of these lyrics you know they sound so serious and profound but they're so absurd on purpose where you have you know you'll have superman for president but you know and have your childhood heroes join your local government mm-hmm. and the whole thing about you know where is biggles he's re- he's resting down in Cornwall, writing up his memoirs for the paperback edition of the boy scout manual <laughs> You know, stuff like that is just so off the wall, but it it just works so well.
1: Yeah, I think Ian very much likes putting using the spirit of the times yeah. when he writes lyrics. He doesn't just write them in general; it's always something that's bugging him, and they they are always rooted in the present, whatever he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, not maybe not in lyrics like I don't know Jack and the Green, but we we will often see current news and developments things influencing influencing what what he's thinking about yeah and that that kind of sets him apart mm-hmm.
0: musically the bass is great in this part where it's mm-hmm. playing that kind of like reggae-ish bass part which isn't something that's very common for Toll. and specifically right after that put your Bet on number one line there's that really short you know, little bass groove which i'm sure you know exactly what i'm talking about mm-hmm. uh which is so great it's just there for like a split second but it, it just sounds so good the way it's played
1: yeah yeah i know what you're talking about not sure i would call it a reggae feel but yeah
0: no not that part the reggae oh, feels like the doo doo do, doo do, doo do, doo do, doo. that part's kind of reggae-ish to me
1: oh yeah if, if you isolate it and put it to a reggae beat yeah, yeah. it would work I, uh, never thought about it like that that's very cool
0: so we kind of get into the stabs that oh, sort yeah. of end the first side of the album. I love the panned flutes here, just like going crazy in both channels. It sounds so great.
1: Mm-hmm. With the bass part, I think, and the reggae feel, again, it's kind of still another marching feel. It's, it's yeah, yeah, another, I agree. But with the steps, yeah. I, for the longest time, I didn't really understand what was going on there rhythmically with the stabs because they even kind of hold our hand while introducing this situation because there is an acoustic guitar that is uh, showing the framework within which the stabs happen, but it goes away so quickly and the stabs are so forceful and like the stabs phrase, the single phrase pam 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 is very regular and every time it happens we feel like it's the one Yeah. So our frame of reference is shifted every time, but actually, what is happening there is we have two different phrases, or two identical phrases, but one of them is shifted one beat forward. Yeah. And the one that shifted forward is the first one. And that's what makes makes it so disorienting, disorienting. So for the longest time in this section, I could not sort of clap along to it because every next stab phrase. Comes at a moment where you don't expect it.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. Like it's very clearly meant to be disorienting. I think. Mm-hmm.
1: And what actually happens there is that we've got the framework that the guitar show us is shows us is just takita it, attack it, attack it, attack ta, it. Mm-hmm. But the f- stabs phrase is three beats: taka taka. taka. Mm-hmm. So if we had identical phrases it would be just ta 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 right and that would be very simple it would feel regular and predictable what makes it unpredictable is that one of the stabs phrases is shifted from ta to ka so it it's syncopated so what happens is yeah. And when the frame of reference is removed, we are left completely disoriented if we don't count. And even now, I, I have to count in my head to sort of predict what is happening.
0: Yeah. It's taken me a long time to figure that section out. But I think just kind of Mm -hmm. through ear, I I kind of finally
1: figured the rhythm out. But it's not Uh something
0: you can really teach someone. You know, you just kind of have to feel it. Yeah.
1: Or there is, I think I can imagine how they would, when playing this live, how they would count it to themselves. But that's maybe sort of too complicated to explain in the course of the podcast
0: one thing i want to mention just before we get completely off the childhood heroes that as we kind of go into the stabs there's that keyboard organ part that's playing Mm -hmm. that part has always sounded like stars in the sky to me that's what it's always made me think of like twinkling stars in the sky but it also the way the organ is being played i don't know what he's doing exactly but it almost sounds like a turntable like you know a dj's turntable that's being uh spun you know I, I don't know how to describe that but it's always kind of had that feeling to me
1: the one that organ before the stars
0: yeah so there's the piano part that's going and there's there's his his other hand is playing something on the organ but it, the way that it sounds mm-hmm. it's kind of disorienting and it almost sounds like it's like a turntable that's being like scratched yeah, back i think and forth. i think
1: that's the the organ glissandos will will feel like that yeah that's sort of one of the things you can do on a Hammond organ where you just move your fists move your entire hand across the keys mm-hmm.
0: I love the lazy kind of guitar part that just comes in twice during the stabs and then goes away mm-hmm. that's just one of those like classic tall things that this album is chock full of uh-huh the um it's it's the kind of folksy sounding part the da 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 that part mm-hmm. it just it's just there twice and then it's gone
1: yeah that's the one that's uh i think setting us the giving us the frame of reference Mm -hmm. uh to think about the stabs right but yeah it only does it for so long
0: and then they start getting
1: crazy with the panning at the end which is great too Mm -hmm. i think where yeah so panning and the reverb uh the the, not 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 the reverb the delay yeah
0: you have that kind of leftover guitar quack that shows up in mm-hmm. your left ear, the bap, 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 yeah. bap. And then the, so the rest of the band gets put in the right ear and it's sort of fading away while the guitar quack is sort of still at full mm-hmm. volume in your left ear and it's it's a really cool effect.
1: Yeah, the, the guitar is gone but the echo remains.
0: Yeah. And then finally, we kind of hit the climax where there's just a ridiculous sound that kind of sounds like an explosion in your brain, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they pan it across, so it's like there's this explosion just going across your head.
1: Yeah, I feel like the ending of the first side of the record sort of feels even more epic. Without even, it feels more epic than the ending of the second side.
0: Yeah. One thing I was interested in hearing your take on is, so after that explosion, like the last couple seconds of the first side, there's this very, like, creepy... Organ part, if you know what I'm talking about, that's uh, kind of closes the first side. And for whatever reason, it took me years before I re- I noticed that. I don't know. I guess I was wasn't volume listening volume. at a high enough volume. Yeah, 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 exactly. And to me, it's almost like it's the l- it's the remainder of the battlefield after the explosion or <laughs> something. That's kind of what it sounds like.
1: Yeah, it could be. But it could also be just on the pragmatic level. Uh, something to keep the tension going. Mm-hmm. Something to keep you listening and to bring you to the turntable so you flip, flip the record over and listen what follows. Yeah. So it doesn't feel fi- final. It doesn't feel like it's ended. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of thing. So creating, making it feel like a cliffhanger.
0: Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. And side two opens on kind of another creepy note, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a literal note, but... You kind of open with So the Wind Blowing, which I think is uh, a very sort of iconic part of, of the album. Coming into that sort of like minstrel's hall party is kind of what it sounds like, mm-hmm. but very short. You know, it doesn't last long, but it's just kind of like something right out of the 18th century Coming with the flutes and I, I think there's maybe some strings in there or something.
1: I'm not not sure there are strings, but yeah. No, I thought there was a violin m- or something. M- maybe an organ, something. Yeah. And I think the the theme that's, that that we hear that, that before the main riff is introduced, I think it must be the same thing that the the previous side ended on. Boom, boom, boom. Hmm. Boom, boom, boom. But before it, it was just played in a very low register.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that the stabs come back, you know, pitched way down. Mm-hmm. and again like the sound design I love the way they did this because it sounds so foreboding when you hear mm-hmm. it you know I mean it, it it's almost it, like it's almost fearful to me it sounds like there's this huge lumbering terrible thing in the distance coming towards you mm-hmm. and you can't see it but you know it's coming because you can hear it and like that's what that section sounds like to me and then of course it's even kind of you know there's even more tension because you know that that loud fast part is about to break back in uh-huh. but you know unless you've heard the album a bunch you don't know exactly when it's coming so
1: it's interesting yeah i'm just right now noticing so this is the watershed moment on the album uh, with regards to the flute sound because this is where we start getting the really really sort of overdriven yeah flute again i don't really know how they did it just had the mic going through and through an overdriven amp or or something something like that but the clean flute is mostly gone yeah and now it is it, this like very piercing and forceful sort of sound from the flute right Right. on the on the entire second side before the
0: see there a man is born part comes in Mm -hmm. and when the stabs are about to finish if you listen closely you can hear the pitched down acoustic guitar in the very back of the mix Mm -hmm. and i I remember as a kid picking up on how creepy that sounded how you could Pick out that just very slow, pitch down acoustic guitar and strumming away in the back. Uh-huh.
1: Do you think it was just tape manipulation?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they just took the same section and pitched it down. I
1: think. Uh huh. So slowed it down twice.
0: Yeah, I don't know how what what exactly, but mm-hmm. it sounds clearly like that's what it is to me. Yeah,
1: I'm not really sure because I didn't didn't listen maybe that closely. So I would need to investigate. This is the kind of thing we can't do live while recording mm-hmm.
0: so then we kind of break into the into the loud part again to see there a man is born which is mm-hmm. i guess sort of uh we've gone from side one to side two and there's you know somewhat of a time skip i guess and whatever story's going on we have uh, you know the man who uh you know knows the full history of his disease or whatever the lyric is Mm -hmm. the discovery of his
1: disease yeah it's interesting we've had a son is born and now a man is born and again the sort of coming of age situation right so it it is not the man isn't born literally this is a transition from one age to another right is this how you see it
0: yeah yeah totally mm-hmm. it's interesting how this uh this loud part is played faster than it was on side one it's interesting
1: mm-hmm. uh, j- just to ramp up the tension yeah
0: and then we go immediately into a drum solo which is uh quite interesting i mean i don't know if i have a lot particularly to say about the drum solo, I think the one thing that, you know, we kind of want to discuss on here is the difference between the Steve Wilson mix and the re- uh-huh. the other versions of the album.
1: Yeah, before we go to that, I think one of the things I want to mention about the drum solo is that I like how the hi-hat punctuates oh, yeah. the 3-4 feel throughout throughout the solo, so it's not completely devoid of reference. We, st- we still get the 2-3, 2-3, 2-3 going on Throughout the entire thing and then the bell the bells theme beats uh, the melody from you call your toes and fun right yeah again light motifs
0: and to me I always thought that was kind of a comedic thing where you have, you know, one member of the band is just working his heart out, playing so hard, and then you have just this uh-huh. really light-hearted, silly, like, nursery rhyme thing going on yeah. alongside it. It
1: does have a, that kind of feel.
0: So the Steve Wilson quote-unquote mess-up, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with this, if you listen to older versions of the album and then you listen to the Steve Wilson remix, you can notice this quite easily, I think, but the bells during the drum solo, it goes on uh, longer, in the steve wilson mix than it did before to the point where it almost kind of sounds like it's stepping on like the next measure of the of the music and i've seen some people talk about this online and you know some people think that this was a screw-up that you know this wasn't intentional and i mean i mean i don't know what the story is here but it's hard for me to believe that this was unintentional just because this isn't something that you would miss, you know, when you're listening to the album for mm-hmm. quality control or for a final mix or something. You know, it's it's not like this is like a little sonic thing that would be easy to slip under the radar. I mean, this is something that if anybody has ever heard this album before and they heard this part, they would immediately recognize that something is different. And so, you know, I mean, I don't know what happened, but part of me wonders... If this was intentional, if Ian asked for that to happen somehow, because Ian is, you know, a creative advisor on these remixes. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the story is. You know, I don't think it sounds good. You know, it sounds like they're stepping on their toes. But uh, I I don't know what happened. But it's hard for me to imagine that it was a slip-up. I just feel like somebody would have caught it if that was the case.
1: Well, we can't really discount the possibility that it was a slip. Yeah. Because it feels like a place where, during the mixing, you had to ride the faders, where the bells were on another track, and you had to cut them out before the pause in the drum solo happens so that the organ can come in. And maybe it was really a slip up, or maybe they thought, hey, it kind of sounds cool when this part continues, sounds nice together, Mm -hmm. for some reason, because to me it doesn't really sound that nice together, I think. To me, the problem is not really the absence of a pause in the drums, because you you, you can still feel it, and there's another place similar to this, afterwards where where the timpani come in yeah and they they give you the this kind of brief moments of pause before the the organ part but i think the the bells really clash with the organ yeah melodically it just doesn't really sound too good
0: i think the biggest problem is that you know when barry goes back into the full band part he's building up to that in the fill where he's Mm -hmm. going and then back into the the with the full band and when you have the bells trampling over that it kind of ruins that whole moment.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah,
0: I don't know, but it so you said there was a 2015 version of the steve wilson mix and they
1: didn't fix it right no they didn't No, well, it it was a reissue i think it in 2015 it was a digital 2496 hi-fi sort of version Mm -hmm.
0: i'd like to get the chance to ask steve wilson one day what happened there so maybe maybe (laughs) someday we'll get the chance to do
1: that or maybe he doesn't remember yeah
0: or maybe he doesn't care (laughs) yeah yeah i'm glad you brought up the timpani because that's that's an instrument that i think when I mentioned instruments that were specifically chosen to ride the over-the-top progressive rock thing, mm-hmm. I think timpani is definitely <laughs> a
1: good choice for that. Yeah, and it's a great instrument to just add to the grandeur and and to really make that moment count. Mm-hmm. Because we've already had we've already had drums, we've already had guitars. Not much you can add besides a very orchestral yeah kind of sound of the timpani.
0: And when we come out of the timpani, we go into this abstract, freeform section where everything just falls apart.
1: Yeah, it's called Quote in the lyrics. The lyrics actually consist from tidbits uh, taken out of the newspaper. I read through the newspaper in the booklet reissue, not on the original fold-out cover. And I must say, there's... There's quite a lot of typos in the the reissue. I think they kind of retyped everything and didn't really check because the massive amount of typos in the lyrics and in the newspaper as well. Um, But the first phrase in this quote, we will be geared towards the average rather than the exceptional. Yeah. This one is all over that newspaper. Hmm. It is in the article about the school, like the new model of a school that will... Now let me, let me find a quote would relieve the crushing burden of individual aspiration and frustration during school life. And so it's there. It is the title of a work by a deceased philosopher. There's an an obituary in the paper for one, one Alexander Parrott, I think very much a fictional character. And his work is called "Average and the Exceptional." Hmm. And on the same page as the lyrics, there is a rabbit ca- cartoon where the rabbit says, "I am geared towards the average rather than the exceptional."
0: Well, that kind of that kind of cuts against what I said earlier, where I said there was a disconnect between the newspaper and the music, because I, I never knew about that before. So I, there's really a direct connection there. That's cool.
1: Yeah, and to me, well, of course they just took some some of the phrases. They m- created that that connection. Yeah. But that they chose this specific phrase to appear so many times feels like this one was important. And it kind of confirms, it, it, it speaks about the same thing that the persona of the album is angry about, yeah. right? So um, That the average is cared about more than the exceptional, that it's difficult to be exceptional.
0: Yeah. If I knew that the uh, spoken word stuff here was in the newspaper, I wish I knew that 20 years ago. 15 years ago Because I, when I was a kid I tried so hard for years To try to make out What the spoken word parts were saying uh-huh. And in a lot of cases It wasn't even until I heard them live On the Thick as a Brick tour That I actually kind of Heard what they were For the first time I still can't really make out What the last one is saying I know that there's The average Rather than the exceptional line There's the whole thing about We walked through the maternity ward And saw 218 babies wearing nylons Mm-hmm uh-huh. And then God is an overwhelming responsibility.
1: God is an over- overwhelming responsibility, I feel takes us back to the lyrics to him in 43.
0: Yeah, yeah, I saw the same thing with kind of going back to Oqualunk. Mm-hmm. But
1: then the, the, la- the
0: l- last one I have a lot of trouble with, where it's something about like it says here that cats are on the upgrade. and yeah, that-
1: uh, it, it's poorly discernible in the mix. And I think it refers to um, to an article about pets in the mm-hmm. newspaper. I don't. It, really, it makes absolutely no sense out of context, yeah. and it's it makes little sense in context as well. But I think it's about how cats are getting more popular, well, closer in popularity to dogs. That's hmm. that's the meaning of that. Cats are on the upgrade in popularity with the pedigree once particularly becoming something of a status symbol.
0: This is another tidbit where. I don't know why I know this, but I believe the spoken word sections are being spoken by Jeffrey Hammond.
1: Must be because uh, Jeffrey was one of the Jeffrey and Ian wrote the newspaper together.
0: Yeah, I remember reading that very long ago, but again, I I can never remember where I read this stuff. Mm-hmm. I will say that this section is one of my favorite sections on the whole album, and. As a kid, it was very impressionable on me because it was just one of those moments where I just had no idea that music could be like this. It was just so insane to me at the time.
1: Yeah, really experimental, really sort of in the vein of experimental music, experimental rock music of the time. I I love this place.
0: And the way they handle it is so genius where they have the silence and then the splash and the splash increases Mm -hmm. by one every time. Mm -hmm. And then finally you get to three splashes and then you're back to the beginning. Yeah, you know, it's like the 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 glitch has happened again, where you're back at the very beginning. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's so surreal and it's so it's so brilliant. I think the way they handled yeah, it. Yeah, I
1: think surreal is the operative word yeah. here. and yeah, I think it's a brilliant place. It's a brilliant section of the album.
0: One little thing that's cool is, uh, especially I think in the Steve Wilson mix, if you turn your volume up during the silences, you can hear sort of them shifting on the chairs. <laughs> kind of in in the live room between uh-huh. the silences, which is quite cool.
1: Yeah, kind of has that feel.
0: So then we move on to uh, where the guitar motif is back again for the third time. Mm-hmm. We go into Clear White Circles, which is another of my favorite parts of the album. Yeah.
1: Uh, we we go back to the main theme on the guitar, but the melody is completely new. Mm-hmm. I love that about it.
0: And this is another part where it's it's very visually distinct. Like I can I can see where this piece of music takes place in.
1: Mm-hmm. With the yeah, this one sets the scene very very well. Yeah,
0: the clear white circles of morning wonder, at, mm-hmm. uh, with the Lord of the Hills. It's so great the way they set that. And again with where you're suddenly just you're jut back into this beginning riff again. It's almost kind of like. It's so cinematic, you know. It's it's kind of like you're uh, you're watching a David Lynch movie or something, <laughs> where you know you're watching a scene with a particular type of characters, and then just out of nowhere, you're starting over with a completely different cast of characters in a totally different locale.
1: Mm-hmm. Or maybe or maybe a Monty Python skit. Yeah, because the, these kind of cuts to something completely different. Pardon the the quotation. Mm-hmm. Uh, is also very much in the vein of that kind of comedic style. So. It doesn't feel funny, but sometimes, you know, a Monty Python skit also doesn't feel funny, but it is.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. Especially as an American who, I guess, famously doesn't understand Monty Python. I guess I can agree. <laughs> so you
1: really not not understand Monty Python?
0: Well, I probably, I mean, Perfect. I watched some of it when I was a kid, but I do think that some it doesn't land quite the same for non-British people, <laughs> or maybe non-Europeans, I guess. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a huge Monty Python fan, but I, I like some <laughs> of it. But I, I do agree that Some of it is just surreal enough in a way that it doesn't quite sit well with Americans (laughs) for some reason.
1: Yeah, it could be.
0: And, you know, I remember just as an aside, they talked a bit about how they took Thick as a Brick on tour in Japan as well, which Uh told, I mean, they played in Japan a little bit in the 70s, but not like to a huge degree. But it's kind of interesting. I think they mentioned about how Thick as a Brick was not understood at all by the Japanese. Uh And that there's some ridiculous story I read about how Terry Ellis had like, signs written in Japanese to try to explain what was happening on stage during (laughs) parts of the tour, which I don't really know how that would work, but...
1: Well, yeah, they had to have subtitles.
0: But (laughs) what would... what would you even say to... I mean, I don't know what you would say in English to try try to describe Thick as a Brick.
1: Yeah, it needs the kind of ability to... to create context behind... Mm -hmm. behind what is being said or showed, yeah.
0: But anyway, Um, I, I... I feel like, lyrically, this Clear white circles part is disconnected from the rest of the album. And in fact I feel like I mean most of side two is kind of disconnected
1: in my mind. Kind of yes, because it paints a picture and not in the way that the points in the painter part paints a picture. Yeah. So there's no real opinion in this part, by which I mean that the thick as a brick is full of criticism and it's full of a, a person talk talking to someone else about how they dislike them. Yeah. <laughs> And right here, it it is just sort of a landscape situation with characters being described. And it's not quite disconnected, but we we started getting that character building, queuing for Sonny's and How's Your Granny, and that that sort of thing. And it brings us back to the voice that that, that we've gotten used to.
0: I think if it ties in in any way, that this may be kind of a comment on the banality of like the adult white collar office work life which maybe the man at this point is maybe part of where the whole thing about at the office canteen giving small mm-hmm. talk about your granny and ernie mm-hmm. um, i mean maybe that's a stretch but i think if it if it is connected to kind of the wider narrative i think that's kind of where this would
1: fall yeah i think so musically in this part i like the really like first i really like the place where the sustained note on the bass uh is left with with the hammond uh, where the guitar remains alone and with no panning on the guitar builds up a great tension. Mm-hmm. And r- I r- really like that moment. And before it get, goes to Legends, there's a re- the bass is very interesting. And I'm, I'm not sure what's happening there. There's a really interesting attack on the bass. I can't really figure it out. It sounds like this, the bass is playing five notes. But all, the, all of these notes ha- have the same harmonic on top of them. Mm. So is it the bass and the guitar with the guitar playing the same note? Or maybe a lute, which Martin Barr plays on this album somewhere? I'm really not sure what is happening there. And it's very interesting to to listen to that and just to hear that we have two instruments playing the same part rhythmically. One of them is kind of masked by the other. Mm -hmm. It sounds quite strange and and very peculiar.
0: So then we come into Legends and Believe in the Day. I'd be interested to know your take on this part, because this is kind of the only part of the album that starts
1: to drag for me. Really? Yeah. Because for me, I think one of the one of my favorite parts. Oh wow! Yeah, we're totally opposite there. (laughs) Uh, I love the the vibrato that on the voice. Mm -hmm. There, I'm I'm not sure if that if that's a Leslie effect or or a vibrato. What exactly he's doing there? Uh, Lyrically this is the the part of the of the lyrics to me that are the most john anderson probably the the most grand and completely unintelligible yeah i'm well, not unintelligible uh, enigmatic yeah totally kind of metaphor upon metaphor make of it what you will yeah cradled in the seagull's call. yeah exactly whatever the hell they mean because i mean
0: right from the beginning we're getting into i mean th- there's a lot of you know abstract heady stuff in this album but this is kind of the peak where we're getting into like ancient tribal hymns coming yeah, out of yeah. the seagull and that kind of thing
1: the legends part is is quite short and then it follows immediately with believe in the day or do you feel that the legends is separate from that
0: no i agree the legends is kind of a prelude to the next uh-huh. section
1: yeah and in the next section uh sort of the, the tremolo splitter kind of part i don't again I, i'm not sure how it was achieved the flutes Going through a very aggressive tremolo, maybe? Yeah. Where it goes, goes it is definitely a flute because you're going to, among all, all of that split kind of situation, you can hear the flute attack.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually. Um, I didn't realize that was a flute. I thought it was a synth or something, but I, I see that it is I, a flute. I listened
1: closely and I think it's a flute because in between, uh, I think it was a flute going through a, some kind of pedal that cut it up mm-hmm. with a waveform, just like a square wave. Where it comes in on one part of the wave and completely cuts out on, on on another. So and you can hear the sort of spitting attack in one of the moments, yeah, which kind of shouldn't have been there, but it made it there. And I think it confirms that it's a flute. And I love that the guitars are panned in different channels, do the so, sort of volume knob swell trick, where they play a note and then bring in the volume, so you can't hear the attack on the guitar, so it just goes whoop. Yeah, I was
0: gonna ask uh, if if that was a guitar. I didn't know if that was a keyboard or what. And Yeah,
1: I'm, sh- I'm sure that's a guitar. I'm assuming uh, we're talking
0: l- about the the little uh-huh. wimpy part that's like the wah, wah, wah.
1: So we, we've got two instruments that are using a very uncharacteristic tone, that yeah. don't sound like themselves, and I, I, I love that about it.
0: The poet and the painter come back,
1: which is kind of interesting uh-huh. in the lyrics. Yeah, well, the poet and the wise man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right.
0: right. And there, there's a very long break in this section with just Ian, which kind of stands out on the album, where there's there's a very mm-hmm. long period where there's nobody else playing except Ian.
1: Mm-hmm. I also like how the Hammond repeats the harpsichord part in the chorus and gives it a more, again, a more marching feel. And this is March number 3, I think, which is mm-hmm. more, like, has, like, a longer period. And uh has a triple has a triplet in it, so it goes like ta 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 yeah yeah
0: yeah 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 very march like the keyboard also gets very classical like Beethoven esque mm-hmm. parts where it's playing I'm sure there's some technical name for this, I don't know, but it you know the da 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 um that's mm-hmm. quite yeah, interesting. That,
1: that that's the one I'm talking about, right? It's played on the harpsichord for first and then on the Hammond. Ah uh, yeah. In this section, this is one of the places I think where Barry gets a little goofy, mm. because before the last chorus on the on the phrase "wise men indoors" feels to me like one of those things that drama starts to do as a joke. He goes into a different kind of rhythm, a kind of a groovy, groovy beat that feels a little out of place, and feels like he's doing it that as a joke, and everyone's giving giving him a disapproving stare, like you stop this nonsense right now. Uh, but it turns out really cool.
0: I'm gonna have to go back and see what you mean. I don't off the top of my head I'm not picturing
1: that. Uh-huh. It is on the phrase wise man indoors. It just goes into a groove that wasn't there and that w- won't come back.
0: So we go into the tales of your life, which is kind of like the long march home, sort of like getting mm-hmm. to the climax sort of I think this is... When you speak of climaxes, I think this is kind of where the lyrics reach like their their epic climax.
1: Yeah, maybe. <laughs> there's another thing about the lyrics, but go on. Okay.
0: So, I mean, what I'm talking about is that things like when he starts addressing all you young men building castles, mm-hmm. see the summer lightning cast its bolts upon you and the hour of judgment draws near, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm.
1: It does feel very epic, but there's a the thing about... The lyrics in this section that I noticed quite recently, and I can't—this is something I can't unhear after I heard this. Um, I will read out to you the, a part of the lyrics and see if you notice something. See if it reminds you of anything. Let me help you to pick up your dead, as the sins of the fathers are fed with the blood of the fools and the thoughts of the wise and from the pen under your bed. Monty Python? No, it is a limerick. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah, yeah. The poetic meter of that is a ruddy limerick.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was thinking of the bring out your dead Monty Python thing.
1: Oh, bring out your dead, yeah. yeah. Sure, but I, I don't think that's that's a very direct reference. But the poetic meter of most of this section is a limerick. With all the grandeur, all the, you know, apocalyptic imagery the gutters run red, while the fool toast his God in the sky. Yeah, yeah, I see. What uh, <laughs> it's set to the rhythm of a limerick, which I don't know. It's kind of hilarious. Mm-hmm. And, and musically, they have to, they have to alter the, t- the time signature to fit fit the the middle of the limerick. So it goes four four, then two beats of uh, two bars of three four. No, then one bar of three four, and then back to four four again. Mm.
0: With the lyrics, it, they ma- he's m- kind of making it sound like there's some grand climax or invasion or some some disaster happening and there's a lot of focus on whether you're going to be the the fool who tries to stand and fight or the smart one who runs
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that kind of ramping up the the consequences Mm -hmm. musically
0: there's a lot of wild stuff that starts happening where the timpani comes back Mm -hmm. and is kind of sillier than before and then there's uh,
1: lots of time signature again very sort of complex i'm i'm struggling to analyze what kind of time signature stuff is going on in there
0: there's an alarm clock at one point uh,
1: yeah ian's favorite uh, stage prop i love the harpsichord kind of randomly coming in and out it sounds really good Uh yeah and we've got march number four which is a different yet another the last marching feel again with a with a long period which goes like ta dom ta dom takita dom yeah.
0: Yep. There's one part where so, the, the keyboard is kind of hanging like a a hammer horror film soundtrack if you know what I mean.
1: <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which one you're talking about there.
0: The da, da 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 da. It's kind of like an old school like Victorian like horror haunted house type feel just for a second. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, this is probably this one is the true climax of the of the album. Yeah. Because it got so much stuff, because the next part doesn't really feel like a climax.
0: So it kind of builds up towards this final resolution, and there's kind of like this crazy transition where the synth sound, which you don't really hear anywhere else on the album, uh-huh. kind of expands yeah. out, and you kind of you suddenly emerge back into the a reprise of Childhood Heroes. Yeah, you know,
1: like a it's a time warp. Kind yeah, of
0: thing. yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's that kind of feeling. I love the re- the reprises in this part. It's kind of all the different musical hooks from the the album, kind of coming back to take a bow or something.
1: I like the 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 strings part in here because it lends it something completely new.
0: Yeah, I was gonna mention that where the strings. I think that's another part where they they did that to try to make it sound as ridiculously, you know, mm-hmm. grandiose as possible, but it uh, it really works quite well.
1: I feel like in, in this part it could have been more, more epic to me, like the reprise, the, coming back to all the themes, without kind of ramping them up to a more epic sound. It, to me, maybe even a little bit underwhelming, but that's it works within the context of the album because the album isn't something that can have an epic ending, really. Yeah. So it, it is kind of anticlimactic sort of feels to me.
0: One thing I thought was interesting on the Steve Wilson remix, um, right before they come to the orchestral part, uh-huh. they kept Ian's little... Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I thought they might cut that because they, they cut a similar thing from Passion Play, which is kind of funny. I was kind of wondering if Ian would want to keep that in or not.
1: Oh, yeah, maybe Ian's more fond of thick as a brick mm-hmm. than his fond of passion play and therefore uh, the, the the little things like that m- made it in i l- in the in the very end of the of this part before we go to the to the very very last section of the repeat of the intro it's like it feels like the speeding up a camera reel in the the last moments where everything yeah just comes comes together in a in a swirl
0: yeah it builds sounds. up and up and up Mm -hmm. and then we come back to the very beginning and the thing that's most noticeable about the very end with the guitar is that it's very noticeable that it's mic'd closer can you tell? Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. that's one thing that's like immediately noticeable to me is that it sounds different from the first time you hear it because
1: it's mic'd so much closer yeah I agree and it's very, very obvious that they recorded it in separate occasions yeah because the intro to the album co- comes in from from far away, mm-hmm. and if we, yeah. yeah, if we compare compare them, th- this is, this one feels much more intimate. Which makes sense because we've spent an entire album with this person, whoever they are, talking to us.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of different ways I think you can look at it metaphorically. You know, you're co- you're back home where you started after the long journey. Mm-hmm and not much has really changed in the end or, you know, you're, you're snapping back to the present where the storyteller is summing everything up mm-hmm. or, uh, or you know, just the realization that at the end of the day, you're thick as a brick you're stupid <laughs> so there's a lot of different ways you can sort of look at it but it's, I mean, it's certainly, I think it's a brilliant ending I mean, I think even, you know, new new listeners who have never heard Tull before, I think they always kind of get a kick out of the ending because it's so charming you know, the way they end it
1: Yeah, the ending is great, I absolutely agree with that
0: okay so we can't i mean we can't exactly rank you know the different tracks of this part of this album uh i think all that i'll say is just i mean almost all the album is a 10 out of 10 for me the only part where i kind of tune out is legends and believe in the day that it kind of drags for me there but uh the rest of it i'm i'm yeah it's great because uh,
1: it gives us the opportunity to disagree yeah even (laughs) on something (laughs) like this yeah for me the i i did list my top moments and my top moments are uh, you put your bet on number one. Yeah. Uh, be- Legends and Believe in the Day, because I, I don't know, I kind of... I really like love how, how that section sounds, and it's kind of really sucks me in to that sonic space. Yeah. And I really love So-called young Youngman.
0: Yeah, I like that too.
1: The bottom moment for me, probably one that you will also dis- disagree with, is the child- Childhood Heroes reprise. Maybe for, th- for the sole reason that when we come back to the theme of childhood heroes we don't have you put your bet on number one.
0: Oh yeah that'd be interesting if they did that again skips that <laughs> yeah i don't yeah i mean i uh, i like the reprise i mean i'm i don't think mm-hmm. it's amazing or anything like some other parts in the album are but it, it, it
1: works for me yeah it d- does work to sort of finish the album but maybe they could have ramped it up a little mm-hmm. bit more i don't know
0: <laughs> yeah i i don't really know i mean <laughs> we spent a long time talking about this album there's a lot to talk about um but i i don't know if there's much more that i can really say personally i mean when when it comes to wrapping it up i think you know this album is always going to be a masterpiece to me and it's always going to be an album that is uh, really important for me personally not just because i think it's a great album but just kind of in, in the memories that i have of it and the like i kind of described the the mm-hmm. the time that it came in my life and the ways that i i learned about music as a result of this album i think this is a pretty crazy abstract album to be as your guide to recorded music you know uh-huh. but it's it's always going to have a very special place in my heart and i don't think anything is ever going to top it I, it's one of those albums that i i never ever get tired of listening to this album and uh, i probably never will
1: yeah i like coming back to this album from periods of of staying away from it Mm -hmm. because um, i really love when i can come sort of come back fresh to it yeah because uh, right now as as i was preparing to this recording sessions i listened to it quite a bit and i really don't like remembering it so well that i tune out you know i like Mm -hmm. being able to to hear things anew, but yeah it, it is one of my top tell records one of my top records ever in general one of my favorite albums yep and yeah, yeah. masterpiece.
0: it's a top and, five album of all time for me not just
1: tall I, I probably feel like with the albums i listen to i listen to them really intent intently and i can you know overplay a record for myself mm-hmm. so and uh, thick as a brick is not an exception just because There are no exceptions. I can overplay any record just because I listen. I tend to listen to them so closely.
0: Yeah, for me, I'd say it is an exception in that like I can never get sick of it. Uh It's kind of cliche, but one of my favorite movie of all time is the original Star Wars trilogy. And I know that's Uh I mean it's kind of a cop out answer because it's not one movie. It's three, but uh, you know it's one of those things where like with Star Wars, I, I will never get tired of watching those movies. You know, like no matter how many times I see him, sometimes I put him on just on, like in the living room when I'm doing something else, just to have something in the background. And mm-hmm. I feel like whenever I do that, I always end up sitting down and watching it through to the end, no matter what I'm doing. And uh-huh. that may sound like our very random monologue, but I just bring it up that that's kind of what Thick as a Brick is to me musically. That it's just something that. For whatever reason, I, I never got sick of it, and like no matter how much it's around in life, I I just uh, I always love it as much as I did
1: the first time. And you just you focus focus on it, whatever, whatever no yeah. matter what you're doing. Yep, yeah, that's cool. I think you no, know, there exists for me a song like that that I can just drop everything and listen to it, mm-hmm. and uh, it's one time by King Crimson.
0: Oh yeah, you know I'm not a, I'm not as much of a crimson guy as you are. I'm not that familiar with him. So someday I'll do a, a deep dive on him or something.
1: It will be worth it, I promise.
0: <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we're glad that you guys are enjoying the podcast. We've been getting a lot of good feedback online recently. We're glad that we can provide something like this for the tall community. Uh, Please go ahead and give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, that kind of thing. It uh, helps us in the algorithm and helps other people find us. And uh, let us know what you think. As always, we like to uh, engage with you guys and see what you think about the albums. Do you agree that Thick as a Brick is a masterpiece? Do you think it's overrated? I'd I'd love to read a take about that. I don't feel like I read that that much. Um, Let us know what you think, uh, and we're going to keep going next episode with passion play which will be quite interesting because passion play is similar but not the same as thick as a brick in a couple ways so i'm excited for that one so am i thanks everybody for listening and see you in two weeks
1: bye cheers